Welcome to Soul Conversations. We are three Korean adoptees that talk about anything and everything through an adoptee lens. I'm Benny. And I'm Kara. And this is Season 3, Episode 12. And tonight, it is just me and Benny on the cast. Um, Shanae is tending to Clara, who is sick as, as babies get. So it's just Benny and I here tonight. Um, We are nearing the end of season three. So this is actually our second to last episode of season three, which is just crazy to think about, Um, especially joining the cast this year. It just feels like it's going by so fast. So um, Betty, before we introduce our guests, how have you been? What's been the theme of your week? What's what's the current um, thought right now? It's, I'm grinding through, you know, right on the edge. Just got to make it through. So today's Wednesday. I feel like, you know, on yes. the home stretch, just got to make it through. But um, that's good, feeling that's good. Yeah, feeling good, um, feeling rejuvenated, uh, you know, ready to go. How about you? How was your week? You you the went week. into work for the first time. I did. I'm having um, my, my post-COVID or my pre-COVID life is starting to make its way back into uh, near site and I went into an office, the office for the first time in uh, two years. And it was overwhelming. That's for sure. I mean, I'm definitely in a larger space. I obviously I've been I've been with the brand now I've been with Starbucks for a year, but never set foot in the office. Um, And you know, I moved out here for the job. So it definitely felt like a kind of solidifying moment. It has felt like a little surreal, like, oh, like, this was a part of the whole like vision, the whole manifestation. And like, here I am finally. So there was definitely a moment of gratitude, which felt really nice because I candidly have felt like I haven't been able to feel grateful for things recently. I mean, that was a big part of coming out of my, my downfall over the past couple of years, like many of us have gone through. It's just, it was impossible for me to see the good in my life. And it felt really nice to leave that day really feeling like accomplished and like I could feel the gratitude. So look at me just jumping in and getting deep here. Um, so that was a big theme, <laughs> but really excited and just candidly a little emotional even about the season coming to an end. It's been, you know, the podcast has been such a new part of my life and my current life story to think about it nearing that end also is a little like crazy to think about. So I don't know how you're feeling about it, Benny. But here we are at the very end. It's hard to believe. I, I, I can't express the words, but um, yeah, grateful for sure. Um, never would have thought, but uh, it's, it's, I love the journey. Love the We're journey. There. Love that. Well, we're very excited because we have a friend here joining us tonight, um, staying up late, three hours uh, behind us here. We have Jeremy Holt on the show tonight, and I will do a little dry bio on them before they can introduce themselves because I believe that they will do a much better job. Um, But Jeremy is a non-binary author whose recent works include Made in Korea, Virtually Yours, Before Houdini, and Skip to the End. 
originally from no place in particular order. They have called Italy, Singapore, England, Norway, and Texas home at various points in their life. I'm very curious about a lot of those places. So we'll get into that. (laughs) They have some exciting work and projects coming up very soon, but we won't ruin any surprises. We'll let Jeremy talk about that a little bit later. And when they are not writing, they are a Mac genius and fixing computers and getting confused with their identical triplet brothers. Boom. Hi, Jeremy. Hello. That was uh, quite the introduction. <laughs> it was. It's always like <laughs> awkward to hear like somebody else read it off. You're, it's like uh, when somebody when people are singing happy birthday to you. It, yeah. <laughs> and it's it's interesting because this is uh, my bio on my website that I wrote. So it's weird to hear it read back to me. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to go edit that immediately. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like it. I like it. Love it. Well, I actually am curious about the order of some of those uh, places. I would love to hear what's the quick track of your geography. I mean, it's basically in that order. I can kind of expand on the the time in each place. So uh, my brothers and I were born in Korea in Seoul, um, adopted after about a year, and were reunited in New Jersey in 1983. And my mom's side of the family most of them at that time were in and around New Jersey. My dad's family is mostly in and around Pennsylvania. And so we were there for, I don't really recall how long. And then my dad, who is a retired electrical engineer, took a job in Italy. And we moved there when I was an infant, so I don't really remember that. And that was about a year and a half. And then moved to Singapore for six years. Um, so that's basically um, kindergarten to fifth grade. And then moved to England, which was all of sixth grade, half of seventh, and then finished seventh grade in Norway, all the way to the end of 10th grade, and then finished the last years of high school in Texas, and then moved to Georgia for college, and then New York City. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What a list. How, I mean, culturally, what implications do you feel like that had on you as a human? Um, I didn't really have a culture, to be honest. Mm. Uh, when people say where I'm from, I don't really know how to answer it. And right. I think a lot of expat um, or third culture kids, as we're referred to, um, don't really know how to answer that because these places represent very specific points in my life. And I can't just say one of them is the definitive one. It's like saying, you know, my childhood defines my entire life. Right. So um, I'm compelled to say New York City because this is my third time moving to New York. Um, that but something. even that feels insincere and not quite accurate. So, yeah, I don't know. What keeps bringing you back to New York? I just love the energy and I've, I've always wanted to live here and I left twice for the wrong reasons. Mm. And now that I'm back, um, I'm going to stay here for as long as possible. Um, if I end up dying in Brooklyn, uh, that won't be the worst way to go. <laughs> I love that. I love that. What's your favorite things to do in Brooklyn? Give me some spots. Um, I, I really like grabbing a drink with friends or um, just taking a walk around Park, Park Slope where I live, seeing a movie. Um, but usually when I move, I tend to try to nest. I'm actually, strangely enough, better at nesting within a neighborhood than say, inside my own apartment. And what I mean mm. by that is I will immediately go looking for a very good coffee shop, a really good cocktail bar, and a record shop. And I happen to move to a part of Park Slope that I've been wanting to move to that has all three within a block 
away. So I went in and introduced myself my first week when I came back. And it's nice to walk into a place and say hello to someone by their first name. And that's what I've always done to make me feel at home quicker. And it helps me acclimate faster. And I've gotten better at like unpacking boxes and hanging up art in my apartment, which historically speaking, I've been bad at. But um, yeah, so that's what I definitely look for when I move. And, and it's nice that this place has all of that. I do feel unpacking is kind of hard to do too for me, maybe for different reasons, maybe the same, but it always kind of feels like one foot's always a little bit out the door, never want to stand still and, you know, unpacking things and putting things on the wall just kind of makes it feel too real. Like, uh oh, I don't want to get stuck here for too long. I don't know. How do you feel about that, Jeremy? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. I wonder if this is also a gendered thing where um, if I set something down, and it just starts sort of living there. In my mind, I say, that's its home, mm-hmm. even though it might be a box when I could just unpack that box, put things away and then get rid of the box. But I just say, okay, that's where it lives now. And I, from my previous relationships, I found that the people I dated would say, I think that's like a, a, a male thing uh, when I identified as male. But I feel like women I've known don't do that. They don't just, I think it's called um, object constancy, I think is the term where like, if like if you put a glass by your nightstand and it stays there, then you, it becomes invisible. So I knew people like friends who were married and the wives would complain, like the water glasses would just start to collect around the, the nightstand. And like their husband would just like six or seven glasses at one point where she'd have to just clear them because he just like, as if he didn't notice them. And I, I thought it's kind of accurate, <laughs> like, <laughs> but I, I think that might be a little different because I'm pretty much a tidy person. So I don't like stuff like that clutter, but um, yeah, if I just play something somewhere, like for example, I was out somewhere with some friends and somebody had a, a like a um, thing of like googly eyes, like sticky googly eyes. And they were just sticking them on stuff and they stuck two of them on my arm and I forgot about it. And then I woke up and one of them fell off onto my kitchen counter. And I was like, oh, that's funny. And it's been there for three weeks. Oh, no. Like, the no, eye no, is no, just no, staring no, at me. I'm no, just no. like, yeah, eh, like, whatever. I'm just going to go to work. Yeah. Like, I, I just, and, no. and yeah, see, Kara's like, no, no, no. no. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. I feel triggered. <laughs> I'm like, that thing needs to go somewhere. <laughs> I'm like the person that, like, I want to finish things. Like, if there's a little left, it, I'm like, force it down your throat like i don't want to put that back <laughs> into the refrigerator if there's like a little something of like left in a bag i'm like throw the whole thing out like it's i wow. am like you started saying that and i was like oh my god like that is 100 percent me my things have places and if they're not in that place i can feel it in the back of my soul that's amazing <laughs> so every everyone on this call tonight is a very i feel like it's a very tidy person is that, a, is that the correct vibe I'm getting? Uh, I think so. I, I wonder if how much of a stereotype that is, or if that's just reality, that Asians just are tidy, or is that just a stereotype? I don't know. I think I adoptees, know. I always struggle with, with stereotypes in nature versus nurture of like, where do we fall into that? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I'm always like, I, I think that the nature thing is like a real, that's a real calling. Like I was saying today, actually to someone at work that like the age thing that matters to me so much. Like I, I don't want people younger than me calling me like 
baby, cutesy, honey. Like I'm like, I want to know how old you are so I can place you hierarchically in my head. And I'm like, Mm. I didn't grow Mm -hmm. up like that. I did not grow up like that at all, but that is like innate in me. Oh, that's interesting. The thing about going to like, and I mentioned this earlier, uh, I I just got back from a a CAD happy hour. Yes, I love that. It's interesting when the question of, wait, how old are you? Because someone asked me that, and I said, you know, to be honest, I don't know how old any of us are. Like, I was talking yeah. to someone, I was like, she could be my age. And then she's like, I was born in 1999. I was like, oh my God, I am old. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. I was right. like, yeah. 1999 was a good year for movies. Yes. But you were born. Yes. Wait, which movies came out in 1999? I need a refresher. Fight Club. Um, oh, Fight Club. Oh, God, I'm blanking now. Yeah, and also it was like Y2K, the fear of Y2K. She doesn't yes. know what that is. That, yes. to, that, to her, that could be a myth, you know? It's like, yep. that's all you needed to know. <laughs> that's all you needed to know. <laughs> what was the cat? I So I've never lived in a city that had enough, like, critical mass to ever have adoptee meetups. Like, what's the vibe? Is it like, how'd you find the group? Like maybe there's people sure. out there who don't know how to find these things that could take some tips. Like what, what sure. paint the picture for us, if you will. So the impetus for it was uh, my book, Made in Korea came out as a collected edition at the end of January. So I was organizing a, a mini book tour in New York city and I happened to be able to secure an author talk at you and me books in Chinatown, which is the first female Asian American owned bookstore I think in the U S but definitely in New York city. Love that. So this woman, Mm -hmm. Lucy, uh, just had this dream of opening this bookshop. So she was really into the book and totally supported it. And, um, I connected with a novelist, um, uh, Marie Oki young, who is, uh, has a a novel coming out soon. She also is a, um, right. Has a writing residency at Columbia university. So I was able to get Columbia to sponsor the event but I also wanted an, a Korean adoption sort of representation. So mm-hmm. I just went to the Google and typed in Korean adoption organization plus NYC. And this organization also known as AKA came up yep. and I just cold emailed them, sent them information and then uh, their, their reps got back to me and then they agreed to co-sponsor. And then um, a couple of them came out for it, which was amazing. So uh, once I got to meet um, Rob and Katie, they told me about the happy hours that they host. And so I went to my first one last month and then I went to my second one uh, this time. And it's great. I mean, it's, you know, very different, a whole spectrum of ages and and backgrounds. And um, something I learned that was remarkable is that the whole finding your birth parents and that whole thing is actually not an impossibility. I think the thing I've been told and the thing I've just believed is that Forget about it. It's impossible. And what mm-hmm. I've come to learn through AKA is that it really depends on the decade you were born. So if you're we're talking 60s, 70s, forget about it. 80s right. changes a bit. 90s, better chance. Post 90s, definitely. And I met a bunch of, I'd say three or four that have have communication relationships with their bio parents. And to me, that was remarkable. Um, yeah. So it's been nice because I don't actually have any Asian friends. Um, you know, really my only Asian friend now is, um, my friend, Rachel Kwan, who, uh, we only became friends a couple months ago because she, this is so cute. She read my book and 
DM me on Instagram and said, I know this is really weird, but my, my girlfriend and I are cooking dinner and we were wondering if you wanted to come over. I love that. <laughs> I, was, yes. I was like, Oh, Go uh, for it. I was like, okay. And they're like, through your Instagram, we've realized that you live in Park Slope. We also live in Park Slope. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I mean, that's close. Sure. So I went over and I ended up having dinner with Rachel and Kayla and then their friend Caroline, which are three queer Asian women. And I was like, love that. Where have you all been at? I want some queer Asian female friends. Right. And it was amazing. Yeah, me too. Yes. And so it was so <laughs> great. And so, you know, their friendship has been amazing and you know meeting other adoptees has also been amazing just to know um i don't know that you're not alone and that everybody i meet for the first time we all kind of have this collective uh understanding that we we know what this is all about and we can talk about it fluently i find that interesting because um i've been to a couple um cat meetups too and kara i'd love to hear from you as well but do either of you kind of go in there yet a little guarded, like have some of your armor on, like what no. do I need to do or, or no, I mean, there's, there's or... no, there's no ego that everybody is just kind of wanting to know what each other does, where you grew up. Um, it's a, it's a very inclusive space. I mean, this is my only experience, so I can't speak to, to others, but um, it's been, it's been great. I mean, that was my confession last time. I was like, I, I don't have any adult CAD friends other than y'all. <laughs> like, I've never been to one of those meetups, like I said. Um, I was never in a city where that was accessible. And the one thing I was attached to was when I was that counselor at a teen camp. So I was in a very different role um, because I was, you know, there basically hanging out with like they were 13, 14 at the time. So obviously I played a, a different role than getting to know them on a peer level. I was there more of like a mentor of sorts. Um, but Khan really is going to be probably the, no, look now I'm like starting to freak out. It will be the most adult CADs I've ever been in contact with <laughs> at the same time. So I guess my answer is like, You'll see it, Benny. Like if I walk in there all guarded with my armor on, you'll see it. Like you'll be able to tell. Mm. And if not, like maybe I'll just walk in very calmly and and float in. But I don't I don't really know what to expect, honestly. I think that for me, if the, if I had gone to an event like this ten years ago, I would have had a completely different experience because mm. up until probably twenty seventeen, I identified self identified as white. Mm. and i was talking mm. about that tonight with mm -hmm. some people and a lot of them were like oh yeah oh yeah and it's very disorienting and i think to me that was the fog it was like a white fog that i right. came out of and i was like oh i'm not white and at first it was very disorienting but in the last few years i wake up every day going thank god i'm not white thank <laughs> god because <laughs> being white is so one note and it's difficult now because it they've is. been so overrepresented for so long that they've yes. been kind of like okay here's your 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 little corner stay there and so growing up the only time i felt asian was when i was around other asians and it was really uncomfortable mm. and now i have a completely different perspective especially because everybody for example tonight are adopted so 
it is very different than just meeting, you know, mainland Asians. Um, so I've just, I don't know, I feel way more comfortable with it. And it, it's a nice change. Do your brothers uh, uh, have similar experiences to you or are quite different? Um, my brother Chris uh, definitely was the first to really start that journey for himself. And he was the first one who introduced me to the term CAD. And he was the first one who was going to these CAD meetups when he was living out in uh, Utah. And I was surprised there was even a CAD contingency in Utah. And so he's done a lot of that for himself, which has been fantastic. And it sort of inspired me. But um, our brother, Justin, doesn't think about it, doesn't care about it, not interested in it. The thing about uh, the journey, everyone's kind of at a different pace or have different perspectives. And I feel like it's a good representation of what a lot of people are going through. Not everyone has the same you know, trajectory or path to go on. Well, I, I guess for people listening, if they don't know what the, the term the, the fog or a fog is, can you guys describe that in, briefly? I mean, gosh, we talked about this the other day. I think the way I would describe it, and I, it was so interesting, Jeremy, for you to, to hear your perspective of like, you considered your fog as like racial identification. And that when you came out of identifying as white, like that was kind of your like fog moment. I think for me the fog was more believing the like Disney fairy tale adoption narrative of like, Oh, I was destined to be this person. I'm so lucky. I'm so loved. That for me was more of the fog. I think it's interesting to hear you even say that you identified as white because I'm like, I don't know if I was, maybe I was, and I wasn't like aware of it because I wasn't thinking of like racial identity at that point. So maybe that was a part of my being in the fog at the time, unbeknownst to me, but that was what it was for me. And coming out of it was when I started to realize like, Oh no, like I've constantly put my fate and my, what's the word existence candidly in the fate of others. You know, it was like, Mm. Oh I was so lucky that my adopted parents wanted me and they saved me and I owe them more. Oh, the story. Yeah. yeah, like I owe them more than what a bio kid, you know, owes their parents because, you know, they had Oof. to really go through something and it was all with an innocent lens, right? But then I did coming out of the fog, it was that kind of like Adam and Eve moment for me where I was like, oh no, like they were something actually taken from me and I was actually displaced from my natural placement. Um, and I know we'll get into it, but like one of the first things I wrote down from your book was the quote meddling with the natural order of things. Like I literally wrote that. And because (laughs) that is so much of where my brain I think went when I came out of the fog was this notion of my nature was disrupted and now I have to figure out where my nature fits in my life. How much do I want? Like now, now it's up to me to undo it now that I've been in the fog for so long. Your description of that is so interesting because the first thing that comes to my mind is Jurassic Park, except <laughs> Koreans are the dinosaurs. And we've just been pulled out of our natural habitat. And we're just wreaking havoc because yes. we're just like, we're just, we just want to exist. Yes. That's yeah. so interesting. Yes. <laughs> And kind of almost like that um, misunderstanding that we just want to exist, but other people think we're causing chaos. You know, this or is we're our exotic. Thing to do. We're interesting. Or we're exotic. And like, like, and and uh, you know, like you said, Kara, about just this misplaced sense of um, 
I don't know. Uh, the savior story is just like what I what I've learned recently is that um, it's not so much adoptive parents that are pushing that narrative, so to speak. Correct. I've seen advertisements. Yes. Back in the seventies and eighties, promoting this idea that these children are being abandoned. Yes. So mm-hmm. we, as a collective, as as human beings, should take action and. That was the narrative. And, you know, it, it's not entirely accurate. It's more complex than that. But I think that it's important to realize that, you know, we, like the, the people that adopt kids, you know, they want to do a good thing. And, and right. there's no, there was no guidebook on, on how to think about this, how to frame it, how to contextualize it. And it's like the, those, you know, a- a- ASPCA ads were, you know, the, the dogs that need to be adopted. You you immediately think, I'm going to save this dog. You have right. that. Th- I'm going to yeah. save that dog. And that's kind of the mentality with, with adoptees. And that's, but that was how it was being framed and advertised, which is that, you know, super problematic. I'm so glad you said that because I wanted to even clarify that, that that narrative was never put in my head by my own parents. Never yeah. once did my parents ever say anything to the tune of or adjacent to or a relative of we saved you, blah, 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 blah. Never, ever. It was always the other people. Oh, aren't you so lucky? Oh, my yes. God. Blah, blah, blah. Mm. God, God's mm. will. All that. You know, I was, you know, living in the South, all that, you know, and it's like, yeah, that's even more disturbing candidly to me that that was such a strong narrative that was put into my head as a child and throughout my life that was never even coming from a primary source of influence. It was coming from people mm-hmm. in the fucking rafters, you know, like people who <laughs> I don't know today, you know what I mean? That had nothing to do with my life, but they left such an impression on me that has now candidly put me in therapy as an adult. And I'm constantly now unpacking this notion of Betty and I were talking about earlier, trying to prove my worth, trying to prove mm-hmm. my validation, trying to validate my existence to be like, Oh, you know, God didn't fuck up on me because I did, <laughs> you know, A, B, C, D, E. And if, if I hadn't yeah. been here, those things wouldn't have got done. It's like, what is that crap in our head that says that like, well, I know what the crap in our head is. It's, it's because we've had society our whole life telling us that. Right. Sure. And it's, um, it's a scary realization I'm having now real time that it's like, yeah, that wasn't even coming from my parents. It was just coming from even today, like people in the Facebook, it's like the equivalent of people in the Facebook comments. It's exactly what it is. It's like yeah. a nobody behind a keyboard and anonymity that feel like they can say whatever they want. And they have no idea what their words like actually do to someone. And here we are. I think that's a mm-hmm. very important distinction. And I think that's, I mean, I love my parents. They will always be my parents. I do recognize um, some very specific shortcomings with how I was raised, specifically with this notion that I was not to see color, that my parents didn't see Mm -hmm. color and and neither should I. And when I unpack that now as an adult, I know that the intention of that message is we want equality for everybody. But right. that's not the same thing because the reality is everyone outside my home sees color. So when I would experience racism and I, I experienced it all the way up until present day, it was disorienting because I wasn't immediately sure who they were directing it towards. Because again, imagine just, I'm assuming I'm white. So I'm like, who are you talking? Oh, wow. I, I'm the target. 
Right. And if they had just prepped me mentally in some way that you look a certain way, which is going to cause some reactions and not all of them are going to be good. If I had been aware of that, even to a small degree, I would have, I think, been able to navigate it a bit better. And it's a conversation I've had with my triplet brother, Justin, because he has a five-year-old and uh, his son, Nico, is the only blood-related nephew that, that I have. And um, and my brother doesn't seem entirely concerned by it. And, you know, I'm not going to tell him how to parent, but it, to me, I just see um, what I would have benefited from, from those conversations. My parents kind of had the same um, uh, idea of, you know, we don't see color. We, we just think of you as, as Benny, just like everyone else. And I, I took that as a, a good thing growing up and kind of like you, Jeremy, I, it took me a while to learn that, um, you know, that means to me is that we are disregarding in, um, you know, not talking about the, the challenges and struggles that uh, cats have. Or rejoicing the differences too, because we are not the same. Um, and um, I really like, you know, the idea of too of just, you know, using that framework to talk about how we view that statement. Yeah, hearing you all talk about it, it's also made me realize that because Jeremy, I share similar sentiments of I do my best not to be critical of the way I grew up because it's candidly a fruitless activity for me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I do think about like, man, if I just had been prepared a little more for racism in those conversations, maybe things would have turned out differently. That That's, that's always kind of been a like top, top three for me. And what I'm thinking now hearing you all talk about it is that what I realized is that my lack of conversations of my race and my culture. And we talked, it wasn't like an off topic discussion in my household. It was more just, it was always on me to bring it to the table. And like, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Right. I find it now that I think that is what is at the root of my issue or issue or my challenge celebrating my Asian-ness because I was, because we didn't talk about or celebrate my Asian-ness in a positive way, I was then left that my Asian-ness was always met from the bullying and the discrimination. So there was nothing Mm -hmm. to level it out. There was nothing to say being Asian is good because of X, Y, these things. And then, yes, it also has these downfalls. And here's how it levels out. It was exponentially negative from bullying through all of that discrimination that I faced as a child that I always equated the way that I look a huge part of who I am as something that was negative and bad. And a huge part of me coming out of the fog and coming into my healing has been now trying to teach myself at 33, how do I celebrate and embrace it when I never had the platform to do that growing up? And, and it's not to say that I didn't you know, have exposure to it But we grew up in a very different time, too, where like YouTube wasn't around and the Internet Mm -hmm. wasn't as, you know, up and running. And we had to snag whatever we could. It was just like a resource thing. Now I'm just sound like an old, you know, hag here complaining (laughs) about the times. But it's it's just really interesting to hear you all say that because I'm like, oh, it's it's deeper than just like, oh, we don't see color. It's like, no, I actually then was not equipped to learn how to celebrate or love myself in a lot of ways. And now I'm having to learn that as an adult. And it's very hard. Mm-hmm. It is very hard. And 
there was just a massive lack of representation and the representation is getting better every day. But, you know, I, I love progress. I love when things change. I love when things evolve. I love that um, Hollywood specifically is really embracing Korean culture with things like Bong Joon-ho winning for best picture and Lee Isaac Chung getting nominated and Chloe Zhao getting nominated and Steve Yeun and BTS and Squid Game. These are all wonderful things. K-dramas, great, awesome. But uh, as an older Korean-American, I am a little sort of bitter because it's like, where was that when I was a kid? For sure. Where was I, where was that when I was, you know, trying to date? Because now, like I have Mm -hmm. a niece who is half white, half Dominican, lives in Miami, is obsessed with K-pop, is learning Korean, is eating Korean food, wants to eventually live in Korea. That's wonderful. But I didn't know anyone like that growing up. Right. And that would have been very interesting. And as a Korean American, I definitely um, missed out, fortunately, uh, with this part of the Asian diaspora of like cuisine. Like Mm -hmm. I ate American food. My parents were white. I always ate American food. So I was never ridiculed for the, the lunches I'd bring to school. Right. But now it's like, you know, I work at a school and like kids, sixth graders know what, you know, kimchi is. And it's like, right. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's amazing, but it's like, Oh God, I was just (laughs) 25 years too late. (laughs) Yeah. Just missed the deadline. (laughs) Jeremy. So that's interesting when you said that, you know, we didn't have that kind of literature resources when we were, we were uh, younger. Um, How do you feel that come through your work? Do you feel as like an opportunity to kind of push that forward and, and make the next generation even better? Oh, 100%. I really love the word, Carrie, you celebrating, celebration. Like I am absolutely owning, embracing, and celebrating my Asianness. And for the first seven or eight years of my writing career, I was writing, the, uh, writing these white male savior stories. And I thought those were my narratives. And I wasn't finding mm. a whole lot of publishing success. It was very difficult. And then when I came out as non-binary in 2017, it, it enabled me and even gave me the confidence to review everything I had written past, present, and what I was developing for the future. And I thought, my God, it's all white. Let me change and infuse color literally and figuratively. And once I did that, the character development, the choices, the, pl- the plot itself was so much more dynamic and interesting to me. And I got to do it authentically because I am POC. So it's like, mm-hmm. in a way, I was, I realized I, I was, I had this gift in me all, all along by not being white. And now that's all I care about is writing stories that, you know, are authentically my, my narratives, my, my voice, and also providing proper representation at every opportunity because growing up when I was watching movies and TV shows, I had to essentially do this mental gymnastics where I had to look at a character and somehow figure out how I was, how I could relate to them. Mm, And it was always on some superficial level Yes, because I didn't look like them. So like, like Marty McFly, for example, back to the future, I adored this character, but I never could dress up as Marty McFly confidently because I always assumed no one would know who I was. Yeah. Wow. And I know that that's just my own, wow. you know, shit or whatever. But 
right now it's like if I'm going to be producing content, especially within entertainment and fiction, I don't want someone who looks like me to have to do that anymore. I want them to see Mm -hmm. themselves directly and confidently and feel seen essentially. So yeah, absolutely. I definitely, it's been really rewarding and, and more fun to tell stories now, um, owning that part of my identity. Yeah. I love that. You said something really interesting about how when you came out as non-binary, it, was a moment of you reflecting back on your work through a racial lens. Do you feel like the intersectionality of your Asian-ness and your adoptee status and your non-binary status had any sort of overlap or connection to one another? 100%. Because the nice thing about, or the, the, the comfort I found in, in being non-binary is that um, I could live my life on my terms. Yes. And it basically was encouraging me to take up space. And if I'm going to take up space, what does that look like? And it stretched to all facets of my life. And it changed the way I looked at relationships. I was in a very um, toxic and abusive marriage for several years that that I got out of. And that realization about my own gender identity actually gave me uh, the wherewithal and the confidence to leave that relationship. And from there, I just thought, well, if I, if I was able to do that, which was extremely difficult, what else can I do? And it was very informative. And I think change is important. I think we should all hold space for ourselves to evolve. I think it's also important to hold space for a partner to evolve. Um, the biggest critique I, I would get in pre- previous relationships was, you're not the person I met, which never really made sense to me because it's like why would you want to date someone who stays the same for the rest of their existence? Right. Mm -hmm. And I've come to realize that's, there's so many reasons why that happens. And I don't want to be in that type of essentially codependent relationship. Right. Um, So yeah, it definitely inspired me to do things on my own terms and was extremely liberating. And I'm learning new things every day um, about, you know, everything under the queer umbrella and uh, my own sexuality and, and, all of that. And it's, it's just really nice to know that I can always change. And honestly, I credit my mom, which I've told her this, and I, I'm not entirely sure how she feels about it. But um, <laughs> we, we moved a lot, right? And mm-hmm. every time we moved to another country and started at a new school, my mom said the same thing. This is your chance to reinvent yourself. Wow. And at the time, I never thought much of it. Right. And now when my mom's like, why do you keep changing the way you look? I said, because you gave me the permission to. She said, what are you talking about? Mm. I said, you, you told me this every single time. And it's, it was really good advice because it's nice to know that you don't have to stick to someone else's plan. You don't have to stick to what society says. You don't have to stick to what anybody in your life says. You can do whatever you want at any time. And yeah, so I, I don't know if she likes to take credit for that, but I, I think it's great. It feels like every day a lot of us are paving the own way for a lot of things that we do or are afraid to do. And it's mostly because we haven't seen anyone that looked like us or went through the same experiences before us to tell us what's ahead or give us some advice of what's going to be, what's, you know, times are going to be tough. This is, you know, something that I got through or this is how you date. 
or this is how you make friends and be social. And it feels like every day is you wake up and you say you can reinvent yourself and it's an opportunity to trailblaze a path for others that are going to come behind us. And that it's curious to know what everyone thinks about your daily goal for, for life and in, in that sense of just trying to keep that balance of yes, you're doing a lot of things to pave the way, but also, you know, try to just stay grounded and keep on moving forward. I try not to think of it as me being some sort of trailblazer. I, I think it's more about sort of things I've learned in therapy and the benefits of meditation where it's about remaining present and bringing yourself back to your body when your thoughts become very disruptive and have you trail off in some weird direction. And for me, I just am trying to live as gently and as authentically as possible. And as long as I do that, it's all going to work out. I'm, I'm really big on manifesting things as well. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think as long as I do that, I don't really have to worry so much about what someone might think because you know, I'm doing my best and I'm doing it as, as true as I can. And I'm not tailoring it to anyone. I'm not catering to anybody. And really that was a creative life hack where once I started weaving personal narratives into my work, uh, especially my own trauma, uh, which was not intuitive because my initial thought for years was nobody cares about my problems. Don't write about your problems. Mm. But I've come to realize Mm. that I can weave it into a piece of fiction where no one will actually know. Um, And what's been fun about that is those are the things that people ask me the most about my work and ask, why that? Why did you write about that? And I just say, write what you know. It's personal experience. Right. So that's been very interesting to me. And I've definitely leaned harder on that um, because the reality is that we all have problems. We all have traumas to some degree. Everything exists on a spectrum. So if I'm going to write about this stuff, that is the stuff that bubbles to the top. That's the stuff that resonates with readers and editors and and publishers. And um, I found so much more success from that in in a myriad of ways. I love that. You said so many things that sat so well with me. I love living gently. I love that. And I think gently and authentically, they they sit hand in hand. You know, I can't help but think I don't know what's the the cart or the horse in that situation. You know, it's like the more authentic you are, the more gentle you are, the more gentle you are, the more authentic you, it allows yourself to be. I mean, I love um, the relationship between those two things. And this, you know, you're even encouraging me because I have fallen tra- trapped to the other side of that, which is especially I think as a woman, I've been told not to change, you know, and especially when I think about like body image on the surface of, you know, I'm supposed to look a certain way for my whole life, but I've always been the type of person that on the surface level, I was always dyeing my hair, cutting my hair, you know, messing with my appearance in some way, shape or form. And I always thought there was something wrong with me. Mm. Um, And I love that you were encouraged to reinvent yourself as, as an adolescent, which I think, you know, lend itself as a stage for you to have that empowerment where I think I've always fought that and hated that about myself candidly, which was like, why, why can't you ever just stay the same? Or like, why can't you ever be consistent? Or why are you always changing friends and hobbies? And it got very lonely and Hmm. isolating for me. It made me think there was something wrong with me because 
I've shared this in the past, like the word passion and purpose became like dirt, like became forward, four letter words to me at one point. I was like, (laughs) I don't want anyone to fucking ask me what my passion is. I don't want anyone to fucking ask me what my purpose is. Like, I'm so done with that because it was just this exhausting, like goose chase for me where it was like, Mm -hmm. sometimes I'm really into this. Sometimes I'm really into that. And I know Jeremy, you went to hit on dating. That happened a lot with my relationships too, where it was like flavor of the week coming in and out where I was just like. I'm really into something until I'm not. I mean, that's just how I've always kind of been. That's interesting. And I've always been ashamed of that. So to even hear like another human who is also always been like that, I'm like, oh no, like I don't have to look at it through the lens of judgment, especially self-judgment. Like there are people who want to evolve and there are people who don't, and there's nothing good, bad, or indifferent about it, but just find your people. And I don't think that I was surrounded enough by people growing up who were evolvers. So I always felt ashamed of it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the people you keep close to you says a lot about who you are, I think. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. I didn't have like the perfect set of friends in high school. I didn't have the perfect set of friends in college. Um, I still am. I still communicate with a handful of friends from college, which is nice, but um, yeah, I, I feel like I've been changing my the way I present myself to the world from a very different perspective than when I was a kid. I'm doing it now because I do not want to read or come across as hetero. So yeah. if, if you assume <laughs> I'm a hetero guy, I'd rather just walk in front of traffic. Right. <laughs> because nothing it's- wrong against my straight male friends and I call them out on their bullshit all the time, but, and it's not even their fault. I identified as a straight male for so long and it's just the, the poor socialization, um, and the way we raise boys and the false narratives and the homophobia that kicks in in middle school and adolescence. And, you know, you know, you take somebody like Anthony Bourdain and Dylan Roof, they're connected to me in my mind because they're both white males within the age range, statistically speaking, of men who cause harm either to themselves or to other people. And the common denominator, some would say, I don't think is totally accurate. Like Dylan Roof, for example, who shoots up a church in the South, people were writing these articles saying that he was ostracized by his peers. Women did not like him. That may be there may be a nugget of truth to that. And the same thing goes for uh, Eric Harris, Dylan Claybold of the Columbine Massacre. But what I've come to realize is that it's not an isolation from necessarily their peers or specifically from women. It's an isolation from other boys and other men Mm. because they are not raised to emote and to build long lasting friendships. I certainly was not encouraged to do that. And I didn't sort of have to, because I had two triplet brothers that were always with me whenever we moved. Mm -hmm. Um, but men now, and I, and having been married and hanging out with married couples in a small college town in Vermont, um, hanging out with these men who were married to these female academics, lovely people, but as a group, emotionally stunted, could not have conversations about anything other than kids and sex. And it was just like, this can't be my life. Um, and it was all surface and it never really went deeper than that. And I was like, this can't be it. And so again, like realizing my gender identity was my, my escape, um, out of this sort of like emotional purgatory. 
I love that for you. I mean, I was literally talking the other day to somebody about straight culture and how it is not talked about, especially among straight people and um, how it's this toxic set of rules that bleed into areas that you would not expect. And I think straight people have a big awakening that needs to happen. Um, and I think that uh, it's where a lot of the toxic uh, ideas and actions that are, I don't like to make gross generalizations, but there obviously are truths in a lot of things. And I was even like chuckling at a TikTok the other day that was like, what's the straightest thing you ever done? It was like killed somebody. And it was like a joke, but it's like, it's also not a joke. Like when's the last time you heard somebody of the queer community or the LGBTQIA community, like do a hate crime? Like (laughs) never. It's always like a straight dude, you know? (laughs) It's like, it's like, I got the joke and I was like, Oh, actually that is extremely accurate. (laughs) I, I feel like, um, I think the younger generations are definitely in a completely different headspace. Yes. And I think there's a normalization that's Thank happening, God. which is, which is mm-hmm. nice. Um, but I also sometimes see it in the wild where um, it gives me hope for, for humanity. I was, I was at a, I was on a date and my date left early cause she was tired. So I was at this, this bar that I really like, and I just decided to stay for one more drink. And I'm so glad I did because I'm sitting at this bar by myself and these two guys come in and they sit right next to me. And, one is white and one is, I think, from what I could gather, is South Asian. So they were talking, you know, normal volume, but I could hear everything. Right. And the South Asian guy says to his white male friend, who was very straight, um, he says, you know, I, I, I've been meaning to have this conversation with you for a long time and, and I, I just need to just do it. And he's like, what's going on? And he said, I'm gay. Oh, my and God. And then his friend says, I've always kind of known, but that's great. I love you, man. And I was like, don't cry in your drink. Don't cry in your drink. <laughs> and then and then the, yeah. then the white friend was like, is this why you're really stressed about your parents? And he's like, yes. He's like, I, I can't even begin to what, know what that feels like. He's like, is there anything I can do? And then I was like, definitely don't cry in your drink. Definitely don't stand up and say, everybody, here's a true motherfucking ally. Right. Look at this guy. He's doing it right. right. And it was just like, okay, not everyone's bad. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. all straight men are bad. It's just... It's about checking your ego. It's about, you know, and this is within my own family dynamics where I was raised to just live in this reactionary state. Don't pause. Don't respond. Just react. Right. And through therapy, I've come to realize that is not a way to live because it becomes destructive after a while. And I just, I don't know. I, I think that, you know, for, for straight people, they, you just have to kind of, if you get challenged on something, Feel what you're going to feel. Reactions are totally normal. I'm not saying no one should ever react. You are going to react. That's part of the process. But you should also take a pause, think about it, and really think how you want to respond. Because the response is the most important thing, not the reaction. And that took me years of therapy to understand and years after that to actually implement it. Um, And I just find with, with queer people... I have less of those conversations. Right. So like a year ago, I made a proclamation to myself, like done with the straights, no more dating straight people. Yeah. Like just not, I don't have time for it. Cause it comes with the culture. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just like a, I think that's what's, 
I think coming to a head, I think at least for us woke straight people, it's like, it's not just a label. I think for so long as a cisgendered straight person, it was like, oh, I'm straight. I'm cis. It is what it is. I don't have to think anything of it because it's, it's the norm or whatever. And now it's like, oh no, just like with our adoption and how growing up with white folks, we had racial bias passed down to us a lot of times subconsciously, unknowingly, because like my parents are not openly racist people. I think a lot of our parents are not openly racist people, right? It's just, they're white, they grew up in white culture and it, it's subconscious. And it's the same thing with being straight. You think yeah. it's just as, as simple as like, oh, I'm into the opposite sex, but it's like, no, there's this whole culture behind it to the point where people like yourself are like, I don't even want to be associated with the term or the people because it's not just you liking the opposite sex. It comes with this whole baggage of whole other baggage. things. I think if we could all just accept that everything exists on a spectrum, if we can all accept that we're all a little gay. Absolutely. It would <laughs> smooth those edges really effectively. And something that I wanted to ask both of you is the attraction to other Asians. I think about this a lot as an adoptee and having spoken to Asian friends, both adopted, not adopted. It's sort of a mixed bag on, on where people stand on this. So I was asking it to a bunch of cats I, I was hanging out with tonight. And one of them said that most of their non-adopted Asian friends will not date Asians because they find them not attractive. From my experience, I meet a lot of adopted Asians who won't date Asians because they don't find them attractive. But either way, it seems like Asians aren't finding Asians attractive. <laughs> and it's like, we're doomed. <laughs> Yeah, there was like a study out there a couple years ago on one of the dating online dating sites that now um, um, Asian identifying uh, women are also more attracted to white males. And I thought that was interesting, too. But I think um, growing up in a very uh, white dominated community in my formative years, especially as a child, I think I was always just trying to fit in and not draw attention to myself. So being disassociated with dating other Asian women was uh, my prerogative because that made me Mm. less of a a target. Interesting. Um, It didn't bring up any, you know, jokes or any, you know, you don't want to be highlighted. Right. And I, so I took that into even my college years, you know, after I moved from this, small farming community of, you know, 1,200 people to a, a pretty good-sized city in Milwaukee um, that I still was like, nope, I can't associate myself with dating other Asians because I don't feel comfortable or like myself as an Asian. And I think the interesting thing, too, was um, the only people that I knew that were Asian in my community was my sister, who was also a, a, a CAD, and oh. one of my close friends. Um, and it's like, that's all... The things I grew up seeing was my sister and my close friends. So that there was sure. never that, you know, connection. So I think, you know, like a lot of this conversation, there's all these spectrums and other things that dictate how our environment is and how we react to that environment growing up as adults. Well, let me just ask you directly, both of you, percentage of white people you've dated in your in your history. What's the percentage? Oh, I'm one hundred. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I'm going to say 95%. Okay. Uh, I'm like bad at percentages. So it's only been like of official <laughs> boyfriends. It's only been two out of a couple more. Wait, I'm even worse at percentages. My percentage makes no sense. Let me think about this. <laughs> I know. I, guess, like, like, I can do numbers. I don't it know. It would if I can... be like 70, 75%. Okay. I'd say of serious relationships. Uh, wait, no, if it's. Oh, yeah. oh God, I'm terrible at math. Yeah, now, now we're putting no, these no. in the... No. I'll just do it. Mine was like white. Who was my second boyfriend? I don't even remember now. <laughs> Hope you're not That's listening. not good if you can't remember. Forgettable. But it was like white, Panamanian, black, Asian, Asian, back to white. Back at home base. Oh, okay. Are we counting high school? Yeah, you gotta count high school. I, count, I, I, I only count high school because that was my first. That was my first serious boy. It was like a five year, my most okay. toxic, most effed up. Like hmm. that happened in high school, and he was a white dude. All right, I'm gonna go white, 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 <laughs> white, uh, Puerto Rican slash Dominican, white, white, white. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Ben, you said 100%. Yeah, but when I moved to Denver, though, um, it was my first time, you know, trying to explore outside of white. And the, the funny thing is, too, I shouldn't say it's funny, but um, I, I identify as a straight male. So when I was trying to see, like, okay, I'm ready to see, you know, if I would be interested in starting to date Koreans as I started to get older and more comfortable with that. But there's not really an app that doesn't objectify yes. Asian yes, women. There he's, is. Oh, there he's, is. Okay. There's, oh. but it's the worst app ever. <laughs> it's, and it was developed by Asian women and it's, and the app itself makes no sense to me as far as like how some of the rules are, but it's called coffee meets bagel. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. And it is the worst app, <laughs> but it's predominantly Asian. I, really? I'd say like, I'd say like, you know, eight out of 10 people I see on this app, well, seven out of 10 are Asian of some Asian descent. See, um, I did East meets East back in the day, which is so corny, what's but that? East meets East is, is, you know, it's in the name, you know, it's like, you know, I should look into that. Asians meeting Asians online wow. together. As right. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I don't know if it's still a thing. I mean, it was definitely at the time like bombed well, with the ads and it was like the worst is in that regard, but well, like I had, I went on a date, several months ago with a Korean woman and uh, it was interesting because um, for me, I wanted to try to meet either a POC or queer person, or if I can find, you know, someone that met both that, that criteria, great. And so I, I went on this date with somebody who's, as far as I understand is straight um, and works in K town um, is Korean and was introducing me to all of her friends at this bar that she frequents. And it was a, it was a super fun evening, but it was like a lot of drinking. Oh yeah. And I think at one point she said, do you have that Korean liver? I said, technically. And she says, okay, cause we're drinking. And then I asked her about the Asian flush. I was like, do you get the Asian flush? And she's like, oh yeah. I was like, but I don't see it. She's like, makeup. Yeah. I was like, uh-huh. are you feeling okay? Cause I know it doesn't feel, I don't get it. I don't, I don't know how I skipped that, that gene oh, or whatever. So lucky. I don't get yeah. it at all. So, um, but I was meeting all of her friends, which was cool. And she's like, I'm going to introduce you to all the, the Koreans in town. I was like, awesome. Let's go. And then I realized they were all just 
bros, like super masculine bros. And I was like, mm. oh, this isn't really for me. And right. um, I realized, okay, this is where I'm going to have to draw that line. Like I'd rather meet a queer person because straight culture is just, just it's such a minefield that I just want to avoid. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so that was really informative because it's like, yeah, I want, I want to build a, an Asian community, but, I'd rather build a queer Asian community than a straight Asian community just yes. for my own, for my mm-hmm. own So Benny, I'm going to ask you a personal question. Yeah. Are you attracted to Asian women? Yeah, I, I think. <laughs> oh, wait, that's not super definitive. You're like, I guess. <laughs> no, Benny's I wanted to come off as that. Edit this no, out. No, defense mode, defense mode, defense mode. No, I think it's been you know just a a journey of being okay with myself first and accepting that, um, or I shouldn't say even accepting, celebrating that I am comfortable in my identity, and that had to happen first before I let myself, um, you know, explore other opportunities. So I think that was that's more recent. So yeah, I mean it's a it's a great question, like. Um, I have two friends that have a podcast called Asian Not Asian. Yes, um, big fan. Yeah, Fumi Abe and my, uh, Mike Nguyen are great. And on one of their episodes, they were talking about this topic and this idea of them. I think Fumi was talking about watching Asian porn specifically to acclimate himself to being attracted to Asian women because, oh, Jesus. You, because we watch a lot of white porn. And I thought it was interesting because, um, I mean, obviously porn is not exactly the place to go. I right. think there's, there are certain porn you can watch that for me, it's like, if I'm going to watch that, like it's got to be female focused, not male focused. Like the, the woman has to be genuinely enjoying herself, not being a prop. Um, but even that it's like, I sort of understood the, the reasoning behind it because I don't, I don't really interact with Asian women in that context of like romance or even a sexual way. And, um, I don't get swiped on by Asian people generally. So I, like my experience is extremely limited. Um, but I thought it was kind of interesting because I know for like my two brothers, one of them just absolutely does not find Asian women attractive. Oh my gosh. At all. At all. And I've met Asian women who do not find Asian men attractive at all. Like, They'd rather just be celibate. And it's like, well, that's interesting. That, yeah. I mean, I've had some, like, other Asian male friends say that they can't look at, and maybe this is like a total cop-out, that they can't look at Asian women in a sexual way as well. It feels more familial type of way, where it's like, you know, when I see an Asian woman, I think of my sister or my my mother or my grandmother so it makes it hard for me to sexualize them which i'm like okay but i still as an asian woman like feel a certain way hearing an asian man say that and then i realized the double standard that that has because at one point i was that asian woman who said i don't date asian men but i don't think it's because i was never attracted to asian men i think benny kind of to what you were saying is that because I had associated my Asianness to negative, to being ugly, to being bad, I started to paint broad strokes that if 
my Asian features meant I was bad and ugly. That means your oh, Asian features yes, make you bad and yes, ugly. That's that is what it is. Yes, and it oh was like God. I associated Asian equals bad, Asian equals ugly, or whatever it was. So it wasn't until to like what you were saying, Benny, until I understood and accepted my Asianness, and then I was able to see and appreciate it in others. And now it's to the point where I'm like. Yeah, I mean, I think Asian people are the most beautiful creatures walking this earth. Like, and it's and it's not. It was truly like a like a switch that was flipped for me, where it was like not this conscious choice, but this thing that this mental block rather that was in my way the whole time. And as soon as that was removed, the attraction was on the other side of the fence the whole time. That's amazing Mm -hmm. because it's now making me realize that I. And I know this to be true for myself that I don't actually think of myself as an attractive person. Oh my gosh. So, are you kidding me? I've been staring at you this whole time. You are no, a beautiful seriously. human. <laughs> Thank you. But <laughs> seriously, I, 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 I genuinely don't. It's, it's a massive carryover from my childhood of just yeah. not being viewed as, as, um, as sexually viable by my peers. Um, and just the, the stereotypes of it, of Asian men in cinema in yeah. such a, a, a extremely harsh light. And yeah, that is, that is a, a massive puzzle piece that I've been missing Benny. So thank you for that. Cause when I think about one of my brothers saying that he, he doesn't find Asian women attractive because our sister's Asian. I don't think that's entirely accurate because, you know, we have white siblings as well. And the other thing is that we grew up in a white culture and we watched white television, white programming, and everybody dating each other were whites. So that was normalized. Um, but to just kind of scapegoat our one Asian sister right. seems seems completely misguided and, and not totally accurate. But I, I do think it's that, yeah, I don't, I would actually like to know, I, I think my brother Chris knows this because he's a social media influencer and he gets a lot of attention all the time online. Um but I wonder about Justin, like if I was to ask him, like, hey, do you do you think you're do you think you're attractive? Because I've never asked either of them that. Hmm. Um, I know Chris mm-hmm. gets a lot, gets a massive amount of external validation from TikTok. I mean, he just sur- surpassed a million followers. So, um, but I've never really viewed myself as attractive, and I think that's really that missing puzzle piece is that once you can accept that, you see everything else differently because that is the lens I'm looking at looking through at, at the world around me. And, it, and if it's cracked or, or blurred, it's hard to see. Yeah. That is why the representation thing, I know it is like such a like elementary and like low hanging fruit thing to like talk about, but it is been a huge unlock for me. And it wasn't until, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the YouTuber Ben Dean. He's a cad mm-hmm. who's living mm-hmm. in Korea. He does um, like mukbangs. They're not really even mukbangs anymore. They're just like eating and him being like ridiculous. And my boyfriend's into him and he like showed me like, oh, like there's this cad or this is there's this influencer that I follow. I didn't realize that he was a cad. Like you should check him out. And I'm watching him and, you know, he talks real like this. He's like, hey, man, what's up? I'm Ben (laughs) Dean. And he says shit like mighty fine. And like just I'm like, what? Where is he grew up in Indiana? And he's this like very Korean looking dude, good looking guy. 
he's talking in this like kind of twangy Midwestern whatever. And he says like things a certain way where I'm just like, I'm so captivated by this person. I'm just like looking at this person. Like, who is this person? Like, where are you from? <laughs> Like, where are you yeah. from, from? Like, I'm trying, oh, no. like, like <laughs> you, the, you're, the worst yeah, question like, to ask an Asian. I'm just like, exactly. I'm like, from, from? like, where are you really from? Because I'm seeing all these influences come together. And yeah. I'm like, this person is so captivating, like, so interesting. Like, I immediately want to, like, get to know this person more. And my boyfriend looks at me and was like, yeah, like, why do you think I was into you? And it was like this first moment of me being like, like, I blushed. Like, literally, I was like. Oh, because I always saw my weird intersectionality of not really being Korean, not being really American, kind of being this like crass, you know, people see this Asian woman, they think I'm supposed to be quiet and submissive. I'm just like in your face, kind of like huge, bold force in your face that I've always learned to hate that about myself because of past relationship trauma, candidly, why you got to be so loud, why you always got to be the center of attention, like a lot of things that compiled where when I was finally able to see myself in someone else and see that person as attractive and see that person as interesting and that person as valid, I was like, oh, actually, that's what I've been working with this whole time. (laughs) And everyone (laughs) around me can see that. But I'm the only one that can't. And I felt the same way when I read your book. It was like, me reading this of like, oh, I'm not just like crazy. Like I'm following this story to a T. I understand what this person is trying to communicate. Like, who is this person? This person's in my head. This person's so creative. This person is brilliant. And I was like, oh, I see myself reflected in this. And like reading your book actually made me feel better about myself in a really strange way because it allowed me to see that my story is intricate and like interesting and there's all these layers to it. And I'm not able to see that when it's my own trauma, but when I'm seeing it illustrated and told through a fictional story, I'm like, Oh, like people who read this that have no idea what's actually going on are going to be captivated by this because the story is phenomenal, regardless if you get it or not. I really appreciate that. Um, for for listeners who haven't read it, it's basically it's called Main Korea. It's an artificial intelligence story focusing on adoption identity. It's set in a world, and I was developing this years before the pandemic. But a pandemic occurs where children are no longer being born. Mm. So what happens after this is that there's a demand for for child rearing for for adult for parenthood, and a tech race emerges where. A bunch of companies are trying to develop the most realistic synthetic kids, and a company in Korea does it first, and they do it the best, and they refer to these synthetic children as proxies. And they range between 6 and 10 years old. They, they're they super lifelike, but they don't evolve. So if you get a 6-year-old proxy, it stays 6 forever. Mm. Um, there is a bioengineer at this company who cracks the code of the human consciousness, does it on company time, realizes he's going to lose his masterpiece, if the bosses find out. So he stows his algorithm in a discounted proxy because they are very expensive and has her adopted by a mixed race couple in Texas. Now this is also set in an America where guns are all banned. They are literally under lock and key. The government has actually come for the guns. And to me, I thought it was just a subtle enough change in reality or from reality that 
it feels futuristic because an idea of Texas having no guns seems very foreign. To That's me. hilarious. Um, True. And it also is setting the stage for conflict down the road, but it's essentially asking the question, what makes us human? Um, so that's that's it in a nutshell. Well, we mentioned what? at the top of the hour that um, Sinead couldn't join us tonight, but uh, she actually had a question for you, Jeremy, um, about the book. So she says she found it so compelling that the protagonist was AI because an adoptee, the idea we aren't even human automatically represented this feeling that we sometimes have of being an alien. It's, it's just like we pass just enough among everyone in our lives, but we are always, always feel like uh, really different. What was that? Was that the intention as you were creating this character? Absolutely. Because I, I think that as Asian Americans, this diaspora and even being adopted on top of that um, is very relatable uh, through the lens of science fiction, because we're, we're talking about an artificial, ch- artificial child who all of them are artificial except this one. And so the protagonist, Jesse, knows who she is. She's growing up. She's developing emotions and thoughts and opinions. And she knows who she is, but she doesn't know how the world sees her. And the world sees her as fake. And I think that that, that is analogous and, and directly related to being adopted and even being an Asian American because I, I told the story from two very different perspectives of the narrative taking place between Korea and Texas. And I did this because that is the adoption experience. We don't belong anywhere, even though we're, we live in one place, we're from another, but we're forever stranded. And for me personally, some of my favorite artificial intelligence stories, I think at its core is an adoption experience. I just haven't seen anyone do it directly. And I thought, what a great opportunity to explore my feelings about being a transracial adoptee and, and hitting it right square in the center and ex- exploring those, those thoughts and, and ideas. And I'm honestly just really happy no one did it before me. Yeah, it was very um, refreshing, but at sometimes. Uh, a little bit scary to turn a page because I actually felt good about reading something that I can relate to because that doesn't always happen in media or in literature or in graphic novels. And it, I was just loved turning the pages and having a preconceived notion of what was going to happen next, but continually being surprised in a great way. <laughs> and I love that switching back and forth between settings and, and, and places. And I just want to say, you no, know, thank you for, you know, taking that leap and, you know, making that mindset yours every day and really giving, you know, all the cats out there and all of our listeners an opportunity to read something that's really digs deep to what, you know, what our identity is at the core. I really appreciate that. And and it's been nice meeting other adoptees um, who've resonated or this story has resonated uh, with them. And, and again, it's about representation and um, yeah, I just, I just hope that, um, anybody reading it can get something from it. And you don't obviously have to be an adoptee to get it. Um, I think there's a, a feeling of wanting to belong, wanting to fit in. That's a universal message and narrative that we all know. I know Shadane has all these questions and she might get mad at me later because I'm going to sneak some of mine in. Because um, we're talking about the book and I'm getting all excited. Um, I've got a lot. So I'll, with the interest of time, I'll try to ask my like two really big ones. But I just want to call out some of the things that just like 
struck me and sat with me. I was trying so hard to just like read through it and then go back down and write my thoughts because I was barely making it through a page turn before I just started writing like a dissertation. I'm like, calm down, Carrie, you got to make it through the book. <laughs> um, I had mentioned earlier, I love this idea of like meddling with the, na- the the natural order of things. You mentioned nature and nurture, this like straight there on the head um, in it. I loved the part and thought it was so interesting about when you may, and I'm not trying to spoil it too much, but when they were making the decision to put, put the AI in school and like talking about like, well, will it be a distraction to the other children? I was like, oh, that hit me too, because I certainly felt like a distraction to the children oh. in my school where it was like, you know, heads turning, you know, whispering questions. And it was like, it felt like that. And when you are the only other in an environment like that, it is a distraction. And I wrote even something about like the tension between the engineers, you know, you have the one engineer who's doing it for adult purposes and another engineer who's doing it for other reasons. And you see the good and bad, like you're able to kind of see like the both sides of it. That's very much how I feel about the adoption industry in general. It's like, there's this really dark (laughs) adult side of it that we don't like to think about. And there's this other side that's like got this humanitarian lens to it. So there's these tensions of like, it exists at the same time, you know, and there's this good and this bad, the, the mother's blindness. Like I felt that love, like through the pages of, you can't tell me my child is anything other than my child. That is the love that I grew up in. And even seeing the, the disparity between the mother and the father and how they felt about the situation. I think that's a very real um, experience for a lot of adoptees, but Now I'm just going on a rant. I think the two questions that I would love to get from you is one is around um, the haircutting moment Mm -hmm. because that was a big moment in the story. And the other is about the breaking the mirror moment because that's also another big moment. And I had to actually go back a couple times to reread the breaking the mirror thing to make sure that I was interpreting it correctly. Um, But the question around the haircutting moment to me, that was like the moment of transformation. Why in that moment? I was sort of trying to lay breadcrumbs for the reader to follow along with what I was setting up uh, as the ending. And a lot of the reviewers and some of that I've actually gotten to know quite well because of this book, um, none of them picked up on it until the end. And for me, I was just looking at it as what makes us human. And I think that something that's distinctly human is gender identity yes. and, and shaping what we see in our mind's eye with what we see in the mirror. Um, there really is no other creature on this planet that does that. And um, for me, it was touching upon gender identity, but it was also touching upon just autonomy. And mm. I specifically did it. I was thinking of that scene more from the perspective of, you know, she's about to go on this mission that is going to set her life on a completely different path and her going into the kitchen to get the scissors and just that visual of her going up the stairs to the bedrooms. I, I wanted, I like to try as often as possible to do these sort of sleight of hand misdirections. So I wanted people to think that she's going to be this evil child in those horror movies where the child, you know, terrorizes and kills the parents. And, when she doesn't, it's this left turn um, because she's done something to her appearance and nobody seems to notice or even care about it. Mm. But for her, it's so comforting, even though she's about to go enact basically a, a, a plan of terrorism. And so 
uh, yeah, I mean, I was doing that really early on because I, I wanted to see if anyone was catching up or even noticing where she was going, which was really diverting from the main plot line and something that no one talked to her about regarding gender identity. And she, you know, is a voracious reader and she's read a lot of books. So she's probably picked up on some information, but there's something just innately human about just going with your feeling, going with your gut. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was something that I definitely wanted to infuse. And I actually had to go back and write that scene because I didn't initially think of this as a gender identity story. I was thinking of it more, um, sort of you know, from the adoption angle, but the original draft of the story, actually, it wasn't six issues. It was four issues. And the story actually ended, um, with the the there's an active shooter component and it really the story ended there and after rereading it i realized that it felt completely um it felt incomplete because i wanted to also explore the um birthright of going back to one's homeland and yes. once i thought about that i was like oh wait i've totally stopped short here and there's a whole nother you know, third act that I need to really focus on. Um, so I had to go back and, and add that scene because it really did uh, help bolster and set up what would what would happen later in the story regarding her, her character arc. I love that, that symbolism of autonomy because I when I went back and once I realized kind of what the haircutting was symbolizing, I was like, why in that moment? Like, why? <laughs> like right then and there, but like it, it totally makes sense hearing your take on it. And then I guess my similar question is, at least for my interpretation of the the breaking of the mirror moment and kind of this transcendent moment, which allowed, you know, the character to live on. What was your breaking the mirror moment for you? Like what life events inspired that part of the story showing up? Honestly, it was something that happened in my early 20s um, that I've I've talked about publicly, so I have no problem discussing it here. But um, I'm a. I, was, I experienced sexual assault at 22. Um, this was right after I grad, right after I graduated college. I was raped by someone I was dating who was uh, maybe eight or nine years older than me at the time, and it was something that I didn't really understand how to process, and I didn't talk about it, and I repressed it, and it really did set me on this path of just trying to minimize myself as much as possible. I didn't want to make waves. I, w I just became extremely agreeable. And it's how I ended up dating a series of narcissists and, and marrying one. So the breaking the mirror really was the, the gender identity component because I, I finally was facing something head on and realized I need to address this or it's going to kill me at some point mm. um, in some way, somehow. And to what I learned in therapy is that if you avoid something and you walk around it, essentially what you end up doing is you end up walking in a circle. You just keep walking around this thing and you just walk in a circle. You got to literally walk through it in order for it to be behind you. And so understanding that for the character, Jesse, she has to face herself because she wants to evolve and she, she's having body dysmorphia, which is also a very human trait. Yes. And in order to get through that, she has to literally go through herself. Um, and I thought that a mirror was a really good visual representation of that. I love that. Mm -hmm. Benny, let's ask another one of Sinead's question because I'm, I'm done. <laughs> okay. That's what I really wanted to ask. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, just wanted to throw another one out here. Just about the illustrations because I really 
love them too. Um, Sinead wanted to know, in regards to the illustrations, the style is so beautiful. Are there any symbols or features specifically in the graphics that you wanted to elaborate or share? Or maybe if there's any Easter eggs or any special meaning that you came across as you were drafting this up? Um, no, I mean, I wish George was here right now because they could speak to that. Um, I George has become one of the most vocal collaborators I've ever worked with on a book. And what I mean by that is when I work with someone, I, I encourage their input. I need their feedback. I will write the script and they have to essentially draw what I've written. But I want some pushback, especially because they are responsible for the visuals. I'm responsible for the story. They're responsible for the visuals. So there has to be some sort of symbiotic trust that we can rely on each other doing our job right. And George really took this project very seriously and was asking all the right questions and moved panels around, added panels, deleted panels. I mean, like, they will admit that they're sort of notorious for adding panels, which is sort of unheard of in comic books because there's always only so much space on a page. But George somehow figures it out. And so I don't know if there's any like Easter eggs or hidden gems in that regard, but um, they just really wanted to to keep a consistent um, design, a consi consistent look to the book, um, but was also really asking some hard-hitting questions regarding Jesse's character development. Um, and there was one scene in particular that they were concerned that what I had written was going to make Jesse completely unlikable and completely unredeemable by the end. Oh. And I thought, I thought about it and I was like, Oh, I hadn't thought about that. And, and we were discussing the action she takes in this particular scene that, that really sets her on a, a completely different path. And is it a path of redemption or, or uh, damnation? And because of George's questions, we revised a lot of it because they were right. Like I, I, I needed that feedback. So um, this book does not exist without George. Um, it was the style, their style was not something I had originally conceived, but once I saw their work and saw the character sketches and saw the early pages, I knew this was going to be something special. And there was a massive delay on the book because by the time we got the publishing green light, George had already signed another contract. So they mm. were unavailable for a year. But mm. in that year, they had honed their style to become what people read now because the pages we pitched don't really look a lot like what they look like now. Um, so I'm glad that George took the time to do that because um, they elevated themselves and then just made this book even better when they returned and, and we finished it. Well, it's an awesome finished product. And we're so happy that you joined us, Jeremy, as a contributor and um, another voice in the community. And we know you're a very busy person. Um, before we wrap up, uh, anything coming up on the horizon that we can watch out for? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a 10-page short in a Marvel anthology coming out in May for Asian Pacific Heritage Month. It's called Marvel Voices Number 1. I was tasked with telling a story about Mantis, who is a member of the Guardians of the Galaxy. And I got to read a lot about her backstory, which it was like over a thousand pages of, of back issues I had to read because she her character goes all the way back to the 70s. And what people don't know from the movies, which is a completely uh, dumbed down version of her character, in the book, she was an original Avenger. She fought Thanos. She was stronger than Thanos. So there were these oh. things that I wanted to write about and I basically had to sort of give an, a broad overview of her entire history in 10 pages while also progressing her character arc 
to a place that my editor wanted me to get to. So that was a really fun challenge. Uh, I'm really proud of what I did with that. Um, Kaizama is a, a wonderful artist from Japan who's doing the art. Um, so that'll be out mid-May. And I have a eight-issue series that I can't give details on, but I think it should be getting announced in the summer. And then um, my romantic rom-com graphic novel, Virtually Yours, will be coming out through Dark Horse uh, in September, uh, which I'm really excited about. Yay, I can't wait for all Yes. Thank you so much for coming on, Jeremy. We appreciated it. And you can follow Jeremy on Instagram and Twitter at Jeremy Holt Books. And make sure to check out Jeremy's work at jeremyholtbooks.com. Make sure to follow us on social media as well at Soul Conversations and at soulconversationspodcast.com. And make sure to join us at Con this year in Denver. June 24th to 26th, we're going to be uh, in there live and so excited to see many of you in person and you can still register at wearecon.org. And as always, thank you for joining us in conversation. And if you really like us, make sure to leave us a review anywhere you stream your podcast. Thank you so much and we'll see you next time. Bye everyone. <laughs>